welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Shuba Ghosh, Crandall Melvin Professor of Law at Syracuse University College of Law. We will discuss the book he is editing for Edward Algar on forgotten intellectual property law, as well as his own contribution to the volume, If Music Did Not Pay, the State Court Roots of Justice Holmes's Intellectual Property Jurisprudence. So welcome to the program, Shiva. Yeah, thanks. It's, honored to, it's an honor to be on. I've been listening for a while, and uh, it's been great. So I hope I can carry on the mantle. <laughs> no, I'm delighted to have you on. As you know, I've admired your work and your indefatigable sort of presence in the intellectual property community for for a long time. Um and and I was wondering, um, just as a way of kind of framing today's episode, if you could talk a little bit about the concept of the book that that you're editing. Like, what kinds of articles will it include, and yeah. what's the sort of origin of the book project? Sure. Well, the uh, the book, as you mentioned, is about forgotten intellectual property lore. And it originated from a symposium that occurred at the Syracuse uh, Law Review in uh, published in 2018 on forgotten intellectual property cases. And so, you know, going back to, uh, you know, three, three, four years ago, <laughs> I think there was an exchange on Facebook. Uh, and you may have been part of that. I know Zvi Rosen at GW was part of that. And I think he's sort of the inspiration for the Forgotten Intellectual Property uh, Cases Symposium. I think he was doing uh, some research at the Library of Congress and um, came across a case that's pre-Baker versus Selden that people really hadn't talked about uh, that often, uh, which is the uh, Paris versus Hexhamer case. And actually, I had just written, just read that case coincidentally uh, for something I was doing on copyright and maps. And it's an interesting early case about copyrightability of maps. But anyway, uh, as happens on Facebook and um, especially among real people, not bots, <laughs> the conversation turned interesting about you know what other cases have just been forgotten. And so that was the uh, inspiration for the symposium. We, we sent out a call for papers, got about uh, eight, seven or eight con- contributions. Basically, the call asked for uh, somebody to identify a case that they thought had, had been sort of forgotten in the IP canon and to basically write uh, an article uh, explaining why the case is important, why they thought it might have been forgotten and uh, you know, the, the issues about reviving it and maybe making it part of an expanded canon or an alternative canon and, and how we think about it. So the Forgotten IP case, uh, Cases Symposium, I'm pretty proud of it. We had, I'll read off the list of contributors, so just uh, alphabetically, uh, Robert Browneyes, Samuel Ernst, uh, Amelia smith Reinhardt, Jessica Kaiser, Bruce Boyden, and wait a minute, Brian Fry and Zvi Rosen. Um, and these are just a great set of papers. Uh, your contribution, Brian, as I think hopefully the audience knows, is about uh, uh, patent rights uh, of slaves, so invention of a slave, great title. Um, we had Zvi's paper on Paris versus Hexamer, uh, Jessica's paper on trademarks in the wallpaper case and how they 
uh, intersect with uh, with competition law issues. Amelia Reinhardt's paper on the Beeman and Sons versus National Harrow Company case about the early patent antitrust interface, and uh, and there are others. I won't go into all of them in detail, except uh, uh, you know, look up the symposium. I think you'll find these papers very interesting. So after this came out in 2018, the idea was to try to expand it into a book and to expand it beyond just simply looking at forgotten cases, hence the title Forgotten Intellectual Property Lore. And uh, the idea of looking at lore is to include not just simply cases, but also uh, disputes that may have not gone to court, um, legislation that may have been abandoned, um, uh, legal conflicts, if you will, for lack of a better term, regarding intellectual property. And so we have about, I'm in the process of editing, we have about 14 papers uh, now, including Again, Brian, your excellent contribution on uh, uh, a copyright dispute from Ireland in the 6th century. Uh, We've got several contributions about intellectual property disputes uh, after World War I and World War II. Uh, And then uh, my piece on Justice Holmes' uh, state law uh, jurisprudence. And I think the idea behind the book is, first of all, go beyond the U.S., uh, the forgotten IP cases largely focused on cases in the United States. And so we have interesting contributions from India, from um, uh, from, Afra, from scholars in Africa. Uh, I mentioned your piece on Ireland. We've got disputes, uh, uh, Robert Spoo's paper about James Joyce's poems and how they were uh, uh, published uh, in the U.S. outside of the copyright regime. So uh, and I think there's a really interesting bunch of papers, and I'm not, you know, uh, giving justice to all the contributors, but hopefully we'll be able to explore and do a deeper dive as we, as we uh, converse. Yeah, I mean, I have to agree that I think that the the forgotten IP paper. Uh, the forgotten IP conference was one of the best conferences that I've that I've attended, and. Um, and the work really was great. And I've done interviews with several of the contributors to that conference already. And and I got to say that the the book looks like a wonderful sort of expansion on that same project, which I, I think will be um, I, I think will spark a lot of interest in kind of thinking about sort of intellectual property in a broader sense. And I think it's a nice contribution to the current interest in sort of the sort of IP without IP or kind of thinking out outside the borders of cases sort of uh, scholarship. Yeah, no, I think I think that's right. And I think I've always been intrigued by the idea of a canon, you know, whether in intellectual property or, or in life, as they say. But uh and so, you know, I hope these would be good materials for future scholars as well as to integrate into the classroom. Because I think this is something that students can contribute to in, in terms of their research work uh, while in law school. And not just simply in law schools, uh, you know, in, in other departments where there's a focus on issues about creativity, uh, commercialization, culture, uh, technology diffusion, all of these types of broad questions. Yeah, and I think it offers a lot of kind of cross-disciplinary opportunities as well. And I've noticed lately, 
uh, doing the podcast and talking to friends of mine, the humanities and social sciences, other than law, the extent to which kind of these kind of crossover conversations can be really productive in thinking about how, you know, other disciplines inform legal scholarship and legal scholarship can offer something to people in other disciplines as well. Yeah, exactly. I, I mean, as an example of the kinds of articles that'll be in the book. I mean, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about your contribution, which I thought was fascinating because I've always found Justice Holmes, I mean, like so many other people, a really sort of, in some ways, iconic, but also sort of enigmatic figure in American law. Um, And your Mm -hmm. paper kind of focuses on a lesser known, lesser studied period in his career. So, you know, for listeners who aren't that as familiar with Justice Holmes's sort of career trajectory, as it were, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about his sort of life story um, with a sort of putting a pin in the period that you're most interested in. Well, the paper looks larger at his time on the Massachusetts Supreme Court which is from 1882 to uh, 1902. And in 1902 is when he was appointed to the United States Supreme Court by, uh, by President Roosevelt. I mean, I should give the usual caveat that I'm not a home scholar. There's so much home scholarship out there. So I want to, you know, kind of um, apologize in advance if I'm, if I'm for major gaffes in my, in my accounting here. Uh, but I'm looking at the period when he's on the Massachusetts Supreme Court as I understand the history, he had been appointed to uh, uh, to an academic position at Harvard Law School, which I think he only uh, lasted <laughs> a couple of months, not not because of lack of capacity or ability by any means or, or any kind of you know, academic politics. I think the politics of any year was he wanted to be a judge, and so he gave up his position at Harvard Law School. Um, and I think there was some a lot of controversy about him doing that at the time. Uh, I don't know if he breached, maybe it's an ex- early example of his efficient breach of contract or something. <laughs> but he was on the Massachusetts Supreme Court from 1882 to 1902. Uh, I think he was a chief judge at the Massachusetts Court um, the last year or so. And so my thought, I, I forgot how I even got into this. I mean, th- frankly, um, I wanted. I had this paper floating around for the last ten years or so, and I really hadn't done much with it. I'd given some presentations about it. I actually even got, went down to the uh, historical society in uh, in Boston and did some some archival research, uh, and then spent a lot of time reading uh, the secondary sources on Justice Holmes, as well as looking into uh, his published opinions while on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. I think the way I got into this was. Partly because, as you suggested, Holmes is an icon- iconic figure. Had written some, obviously, some very seminal uh, uh, intellectual property cases while he was a Supreme Court justice uh, that are part of the canon. And so I was curious about that influence um, that he had in the field, as well as noticing noticing that, uh, especially uh, uh, high courts in India in certain IP cases had been citing Holmes as I suggest in the paper, for no other reason other than some sort of rhetorical flourish or or legitimacy, whatever whatever may be going on. So that was a, definitely something that was intriguing to me about that. 
Um, as well as I think at the time, about 10 years ago, I was doing some work on IP and contract and I'm still very much interested in the relationship between state and federal law in the realm of intellectual property. So then, it, you know, I guess some light bulb moment, I realized, well, I mean, Justice Holmes was on the state Supreme Court and then he goes on to the federal bench and writes these, these famous IP cases. What had he done uh, while on the Massachusetts Supreme Court? I mean, I was aware of the Walton Watch case before I started doing my case digging, but then I found that there were, uh, you know, several cases uh, while he was on the Massachusetts Supreme Court where he wrote the majority opinion. There are other IP cases that did come up in the Massachusetts Supreme Court that he signed on to, but for this chapter, I only focused on the, the opinions where he was authoring a majority opinion, so decisions where he's authoring the majority opinion. And so there were about, uh, what, 35 of those, or excuse me, 22 of those uh, while he was on the 20-year the period on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. So um, I basically focus on those opinions. I try to put them in a broader context of what was going on during his time in the Massachusetts Supreme Court. But I offer the thesis that um, some of the things he was doing on the, um, uh, well, on the, well, on the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court, you can trace it back to his experience as a state court judge dealing with intellectual property cases. And um, it is unusual to see intellectual property at the state level, of course, since a lot of it is federal law. Um, but, you know, we'd expect to see trade secret and probably trademark cases in, in uh, state Supreme Court decisions on occasion. There weren't any trade secret cases that... Uh, that Justice Holmes authored while on the Massachusetts Supreme Court, though there were several when he was uh, on the federal bench. Uh, there were quite a few trademark cases as well that he authored while on the Massachusetts Supreme Court. But I was surprised by the number of patent cases. And these aren't actual patent infringement cases, of course, because those would arise in, um, in, in exclusive jurisdiction in federal court. But they largely involved uh, commercial issues that involve patents. So disputes over uh, contract disputes over patents, uh, fraud uh, claims involving patents, some state uh, uh, unfair competition and, uh, and antitrust issues involving, uh, involving patents and some issues of patents in, uh, in wills and trusts as well. So that was kind of fascinating to, to see what he had been writing on that, uh, especially given some of the work I was doing on, on IP federalism and that continues to interest me. And so um, I can elaborate more on the thesis, and I hope you have a time to do so. But I'm, I kind of, the point of the chapter is to suggest that this is an aspect of uh, IP lore uh, that has been forgotten. But I think um, the point of, of unforgetting it is to see how it may have shaped um, sort of the commercial and, and business per perceptions, I think, that Justice Holmes had about intellectual property when he was writing his uh, Supreme Court opinions. Yeah. So, I mean, this is one aspect of the paper I found really fascinating, you know, because we think about Holmes in kind of his academic capacity as being a real systematizer. And yet you describe his, his state court opinions as being kind of much more kind of functional and practical 
in some ways and then suggest that that perhaps informed his ultimate kind of approach to being a Supreme Court justice. And and I feel like in a way it's like it, it seems as if you're almost suggesting that the like that period on the on the Massachusetts Supreme Court informed his sort of worldview in a way that maybe we don't fully appreciate as deeply as we ought to. Yeah, and I should, um, you know, I should, you know, there's a citation very early on to to Mark Tushnet's Professor Tushnet's article in the Virginia Law Review in, in 1977. So that's been out. Obviously, it's a uh, one of the important pieces of secondary scholarship on Justice Holmes that does talk about uh, his time on the uh, Massachusetts Supreme Court. And um, I hope I can do Professor Tushnet's thesis justice, but as I understand his thesis in the Virginia Law Review article, that um, really his time as a a judge in the state Supreme Court uh, largely was about experience, um, that he was kind of eschewing in some ways, these kind of grand theories and really trying to, you know, rolling up his sleeves, so to speak, and getting into the work of being a, being a judge. And so Professor Tushnet ties it into, I think, quite interestingly, into the whole um, tension between logic and experience that comes up in a lot of uh, Justice Holmes' writing and that I also touch about, touch upon, and especially when he gets into... Um, the free speech jurisprudence that he developed while on the U.S. Supreme Court. So I think uh, I think that's the sense I get. I mean, I think part of it is uh, he was leaving academia to do this judgeship. Um, so yes, he is a systematizer. I mean, I guess he's a you know high modernist, whatever the right label might be. He had left academia to go to the bench, and so we do view him as a uh, you know sort of a, a systematizer. Maybe not a doctrinalist in the in the in the in the Germanic sense of of how they how traditional legal academia is viewed in Germany, kind of just term, you know, creating a system. But certainly, we sort of appeal to Justice Holmes in that way on occasion, um, as maybe establishing a canon. But certainly, probably the best way I would characterize Justice Holmes is sort of a high modernist, you know throw out tradition, and this is what's going to take its place. Uh, But at the same time, um, he is very much uh, embedded in the practice of law. Do you see a tension between sort of Holmes, the professor, publishing the common law, the sort of magisterial text on the sort of theoretical history of the common law, and Holmes, the judge? Like, having to put this stuff into practice and being like realizing that, you know, those weren't the the same thing. Yeah, no, I think that's right. I mean, I think, you know, in the paper, I quote in in, in my paper, I quote this, uh, uh, this, this letter that he wrote to Felix Frankfurt in 1913, where he describes academia as but half a life. Uh, I mean, I'll read the, I'll read the quote a little bit. It is withdrawal from the fight in order to utter smart things that cost you nothing except the thinking them from the cloister. A business in the world is unhappy, often seems mean, and always challenges your power to idealize the brute fact. But it hardens the fiber, and I think is more likely to make more of a man of one who turns it into success 
And I think there's a lot going on there, not just simply kind of academia versus the world of commerce and the world of business. Uh, you know, Justice Holmes is, you know, on the one hand, strongly a man of experience. He fought in the Civil War. In some ways, he was, um, I don't know if reacting is the right word, but he was certainly in the shadow of his father, who is a, you know, established doctor and, and poet, uh, sort of a literary figure, as well as a a person of science. And, uh, you know, Justice Holmes uh, was largely in the world of law, of course. And so uh, I think experience guided his perception and the way in which he viewed the law, probably more than kind of the formal rules and structures that we sort of attribute to him. So among other, I mean, I want to return to talking about the relationship between Holmes and his father, which you talk about in your paper as well. But just briefly, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect on whether sort of seeing intellectual property issues like trademark and patent law issues through the lens of commercial law and commercial practice might have inflected Holmes's perspective on sort of what intellectual property was for and how to understand intellectual property theoretically? Yeah, I think it did. I mean, so I, I, it, it's interesting at the end of the day, at the end of my writing this chapter and rethinking this chapter and rereading it, what exactly we get out of Holmes. But I do think he, he ends up viewing intellectual property and the subject matter of intellectual property as you know, what we might think about as ordinary commodities. I mean, the the title of the 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 chapter "Music for Music Did Not Pay" is from the the Shaney case, having to do with public performance rights, and specifically, that's uh, you know the, the facts of the case having to do with uh, uh, playing music in a restaurant. And the language in that opinion is you know is, is kind of striking the way he uh, kind of uh, contrasts and compares and almost at some point uh, puts at the same level the kind of things that the restaurant serves up, not just simply the food and the atmosphere, but also the music. Um, and the Bleistein case, you know, this one that gotten has gotten a lot more attention, I think it's probably a case that every, uh, ev- that's probably taught in every intellectual property uh, course. Um, I think it's largely about uh, the, the, the role of the marketplace in determining culture uh, and, uh, you know, the language in that opinion that's often cited about how judges are not in a position to uh, to make these, uh, these aesthetic decisions is also a deference to the marketplace in viewing, you know, copyrights, so to speak, as just ordinary commodities that are bought and sold like anything else. Uh, now, he did not write any, co- he did not write any copyright opinions in the uh, while well, on the Massachusetts Supreme Court, so you know one counter to my thesis is it might be a leap to go from uh, from what I'm seeing in the Massachusetts Supreme Court to his copyright opinions while on the U.S. Supreme Court. But at the same time, if you look at the language he uses in his copyright opinions, they all are about kind of business and and commerce and the language of the marketplace and really do parallel the, the things he was saying about trademarks and patents, especially patents, we remember, which is federal subject matter uh, while on the Massachusetts bench. 
So um, I think I think that's the, the sense I get of Justice Holmes' IP jurisprudence, you know, writ large. Um, I'm trying to think about some of the, the chestnuts and some of the uh, some of the um, uh, conclusions or um, conventional opinion about Justice Holmes and IP. I think a lot of it is uh, this kind of high modernism that IP has uh, these particular goals. Uh, they may be grounded in some some notion of of uh, the facts of creativity. I mean, Justice Holmes is probably less deferential in some ways to Congress than, for example, Justice Harlan. I mean, Justice Harlan's dissent in Bleistein, if I remember correctly, is largely, let's just follow what Congress said, and and uh, these, these posters would not be copyrightable based upon the statutes. It's more of a kind of, that. that's even sort of a more contemporary, i.e. 2019 view of of intellectual property, you know, it's sort of congressional legislation. Justice Holmes, I think, had a you know a, 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 a realistic notion in the sense that he wanted to ground IP in the facts of what he saw around him, uh, rather than necessarily on on some big theory of IP. Mm. And in a lot of ways, I mean, it struck me that it seemed like. Justice Holmes was viewing intellectual property primarily through the lens of competition policy rather than kind of a broader social policy about what we might want to achieve through these kinds of regulatory arrangements. In other words, kind of just deferring just deferring to the marketplace. That may be the case. Uh, I think certainly – I mean, I think I would go a little bit stronger and say, I don't know if he really had a sense of policy. I mean, that's that's this is one of the things where, you know, Justice Holmes is so annoying in some way. He talks, <laughs> I mean, you know, he talks about on the one hand, he talks about, uh, you know, general principles, but then he also talks about general principles being kind of uh, uh, I don't know if he uses the word hogwash, but I, I could picture Justice Holmes saying that about general principles. And so he wants to go back to facts, you know, facts in the world, even though he also understands that facts by themselves may not uh, tell us much. You know, the kind of the uh, the problem of going from an is to an ought, or from problem from the problem of just simply, you know, talking about the about the phenomenon of IP without necessarily having a a broader sense of what IP is supposed to do, but. I would I would characterize uh, Justice Holmes here as as kind of a realist. IP is there; uh, people will do with it what what we will, and the the, the role of the judge is to sort of accommodate that uh, the best possible. So, it's not a realist in the sense of Congress enacted these laws. Um, uh, we can either defer to Congress because you know, Congress is the legislative branch, and the judges are just simply there to interpret but you know uh, think about what's going on in a case like eldred right just congress has spoken and therefore the courts need to follow and so he's certainly not a realist in that sense and he's also not a realist in the sense of yes congress has uh, is talking but it's really industry that's speaking <laughs> and therefore we need to look at these uh, congress's pronouncements very closely <laughs> And scrutinize them to death, and uh, occasionally reverse them, and do the opposite of what Congress is saying we should do in the statute. 
I, I think he, he definitely was a, a realist in the sense of, um, uh, you know, we think about this in the context of pragmatism. And I think Justice Holmes had a weird version of pragmatism, which we could explore. But I think he, um, I like the word phenomenological. I mean, that's kind of a word that's, you know, you know, a $5 word for maybe a 50 cent problem. And something like that. But, um, I, mean, I think he observed this stuff that was around him and he, uh, he judged accordingly. Mm. Mm. Well, I mean, so maybe that's a nice moment to turn to the relationship between Justice Holmes and Dr. Holmes, right? Yeah. And I really like, I really like the kind of comparison you made where, you know, Justice Holmes' father, you know, Dr. Holmes, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., kind of talked about the play of ideas, whereas, you know, Justice yeah. Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. is better known for this idea of the marketplace of right. ideas. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what, you know, you kind of think the difference between those two is and how it right. informed their respective worldviews. Yeah. And so the, the you know, I don't know if you have, uh, can you accommodate footnotes in your, in these, uh, <laughs> So the footnote here, if if, if this were uh, written, would be to Peter Gibbons. Gib- Let me sure I get the name right. Peter Gibbons, uh, a, a chapter in uh, in Robert Gordon's collected essays of of, of Oliver Wendell Holmes, where Professor Gibbons goes into uh, the relationship between father and son. So I do draw on that, but I go a little bit beyond that, I think, and I hope I'm not stretching it. I mean, I think it is really interesting. Uh, to uh, to compare and contrast father and son. And I've always, you know, I haven't read Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. since I think junior high. Um, and I'll talk a little bit about how I went back and, and prepared for this podcast by looking back at Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. But drawing on the Gibeon book chapter, I mean, there's, you know, the, the, the points you made about um, contrasting versions of, of the marketplace of ideas or free speech the father seemed to think about this as a uh, as play, as exchange. That you know, free speech is about kind of this exchange of ideas. It's kind of like what we're doing now. Um, Justice Holmes seems to view it like the old uh, McLaughlin Group or something, which is a, which fortunately is not the tone of your podcast, Brian. So if you remember the old McLaughlin Group, is just people shouting at each other. It's it's kind of like the the House of Commons, you know, in the in the UK parliament, it's, it's, it's a battlefield. And so, you know, Justice Holmes is, uh, excuse me, Dr. Holmes, uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr. had sort of a more playful, kind of a sweetness and light version, sort of a civilized version of uh, the marketplace of ideas, if you will, while Justice Holmes had more of a kind of a battlefield. It's, um, somebody's going to win, somebody's going to lose. And so that's something that Gibeon plays with. I don't think I've, I've, I've um, exaggerated that too much, but I think that's a really interesting uh, uh, contrast. And there are other contrasts too, obviously. Um, uh, Holmes Sr. was a doctor and a poet. Uh, as, a, as a medical doctor, he... Um, maybe had a, a more a balanced view about how far medicine could go to, um, to alleviate the sick, to cure disease. Um, and it was tempered by this kind of a humanist uh, notion through his writings. Uh, and Justice Holmes, um, maybe, a, you know, it's kind of more of a hard and fast lawyer. I mean, he kind of, you know, he wasn't a litigator, Justice Holmes, but 
he was aware of, of the law as a battlefield. <laughs> I mean, to go back to that metaphor, and um, and that maybe you know very contrasting notions of what the profession is uh, and the professional background of, of father and, and son. But you know, I, I want to also talk about maybe ways in which. Um, there's some interesting similarities. And here I am kind of talking a bit off the top of my head. Uh, but I do remember way back in junior high, we read, uh, I think it's probably the only thing, or at least the last thing I remember ever reading about by just uh, by Oliver Wendell Holmes Sr., which is the poem One Hoss Shea, which I don't know if they still read in, in junior high, or if anybody's read. It's kind of an interesting poem. Um, and so uh, in preparation for this podcast, <laughs> I, uh, I went back and did some research. I read the poem. I actually, you know, on YouTube, I found, a, I found a, uh, an audio of uh, Eddie Albert. Remember Eddie Albert um, reciting what I'll say? And remember Eddie Albert. I mean, the double irony here, of course, is that Eddie Albert played um, a lawyer in Green Acres named Oliver Wendell Douglas. So I don't know. There's all <laughs> sorts of weird, weird pop cultural connections here. But the one Hache um, is a really interesting poem. Um, I, I think it, in part it was a criticism of of Calvinist thought, uh, authored by uh, by by the by the father. Uh, it basically is a description of you know the one Hache is a type of carriage. And it's the the poem discusses the the logic, and, and he does use the word logic in the poem a lot, uh, on which the the one hoshe was constructed, and basically the poem is about how that that logic uh, has fallen apart over time, and so in that poem, you know, it's interesting to read that poem in light of uh, Justice Holmes, Holmes the son who also uh, has this tension, as we've talked about, between logic and experience. And the one hache, among the many things that are going on there, is you know this kind of move to create these kind of rational, logical systems and how they give way to the real world, how they give way to history, you know, how they give way to uh, just change. And certainly that's something that you see in, um, in Justice Holmes's thought, um, this tension between experience and logic. Uh, it's just that the balance, I think, that the two, the, the father and son find is very different. I mean, uh, Holmes, the father, as I suggested, you know, the, 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 the series of essays that he wrote was The Autocrat at the Breakfast Table, which is um, the whole appeal to autocracy at the one hand is interesting, but but uh, placing the autocrat at the breakfast table is kind of an interesting, ironic twist uh, because there's a domestic quality to it, obviously, that it's, uh, uh, I don't think he means autocrat in, in, in terms of a strong father figure that dominates. It's more of a, a conversation, more of a, it's, it's a very domestic view that Holmes, the father, had while, you know, going back to the Gibeon book chapter, Holmes the son uh, seemed to view this, uh, this notion of uh, logic and experience, uh, exchange, if you will, in, uh, in terms of war. I mean, he really was thinking about his experiences in the Civil War and probably how he may have perceived the legal system operating as well. Mm-hmm. Well, so Shuba, in, in closing, I mean, I wonder if you could reflect on, you know, given the extent to which 
Holmes's perspective on intellectual property, I think, has in a lot of ways informed this sort of current state of intellectual property doctrine in sort yeah. of some deep formal senses. I mean, I wonder if if you think that this perspective that you're bringing offers any sort of corrective perspective or kind of ways of reconsidering the 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 sense in which a kind of Holmesian perspective has structured the way that we conceptualize the nature of intellectual property ownership today. Yeah, I, I'm definitely uh, keen on the realist perspective. I don't know if I view reality in the same way that that Justice Holmes does, but I think there there, there are two notions that I I, I want to emphasize here. One is the the idea that I presented a few minutes ago about the marketplace. I think we really need to think about, uh, for example, if we think about the marketplace of ideas as it plays out in the intersection between the First Amendment and intellectual property, whether it's in copyright, patent, trademark, you know, whatever the, the micro regimes would be, what exactly is our perception of that marketplace? What exactly are we thinking about as exchange and how does the exchange of ideas, the exchange of information map onto uh, market-type exchanges? I mean, it's not a perfect fit, even though some people want to make it a perfect fit by reducing information into a, a priceable, transferable, alienable commodity. And so I think that's something that uh, Holmes could have been more reflective about. But if you go back and look at what Holmes was doing, um, he was basically trying to, um, um, you know, have a particular view of the marketplace that's worth uh, acknowledging, but also worth taking apart uh, critically. And I think, especially, you know, in his, his trademark cases and, and and his patent cases, where this IP realism, um, you know, plays out, is also into some sort of a social constructivism. What exactly does that mean? I think, you know, the whole idea of constructivism is sort of overused in the sense of also not being perfectly understood. But I think, you know, uh, Holmes was attuned to history. Holmes was attuned to practice. He had a particular perspective on it. But I think the kind of empiricism, uh, the kind of appeal to experience that Holmes had is is worth building upon, but going beyond what Holmes actually did with his narrow sense of experience. So those are the two lessons. You know, one might be more of a conceptual, what what is the marketplace that we're talking about? What do we want it to be? And then secondly, really focusing on uh, experience and facts in trying to understand um, IP policy and IP doctrine. Well, thank you so much, Shiva. I mean, I really enjoyed talking about your paper, and I am super looking forward to seeing the book and reading all the rest of the essays that are in it. Yeah, thank you for taking the time, Brian. I enjoyed uh, being able to try to articulate uh, what the chapter is about. I'm excited about your book chapter as well. I think it's going to be exciting as well as the uh, the other uh, contributions. So uh, coming to a, to a, um, a book stand soon, I hope.
1886, on the occasion of receiving the degree of Doctor of Laws from Yale University, Justice Holmes spoke of the power of honor to bind men's lives. He said, if it does not lift a man on wings to the sky, at least it carries him above the earth and teaches him those high and secret pathways across the branches of the forest, the travelers on which are only less than winged. You maintain the honor you have bestowed. And how marvelously he has done so through the nearly 50 years which have passed since then. Justice Holmes will now speak to you from Washington, D.C. In this symposium, my part is only to sit in silence, to express one's feelings as the end draws near is too intimate a task. But I may mention one thought that comes to me as a listener in. The riders in a race do not stop short when they reach the goal. There is a little finishing canter before coming to a kind voice of friend and to say to oneself, the work is done. But just as one says that, the answer comes, the race is over, but the work never is done while the power to work remains. The canter that brings you to a standstill need not be only coming to rest. It cannot be while you'll still live, for to live is to function. That is all there is in living. And so I end with a line from a Latin poet who uttered the message more than 1,500 years ago. Death, death clucks my ear and says, live, I am coming. Thank you, Mr. Justice. We now return you to the New York field. Ladies and gentlemen, we have just presented a program in honor of Mr. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, were Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, whom you have just heard, Justice Charles Evans Hughes, Dr. Clark, Dean of the Yale Law School, and Mr. Boston, President of the American Bar Association.